This is W-O-W-D-L-P Tacoma Park. Like a fool I went and stayed too long I'm wondering if your love's still strong Ooh, baby Here I am Signed, sealed, delivered I'm yours mm-hmm. Then that time I went and said goodbye Now I'm back and not ashamed to cry Good morning. Ninety years ago, John Dewey, in his book Art as Experience, gave us a new view of how art works and why art is so important to us. He removed art from its high pedestal. He rejected its pretensions of holiness and awe, and he saw the origins of art in the processes of everyday life. He said, and I'm quoting, the intelligent mechanic engaged in his job finding satisfaction in his handiwork and caring for his materials and tools with genuine affection is artistically engaged. This is the Artist Experience Radio Show, and I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm here with Tom Sinakis. In our show, we follow the tradition of John Dewey. We walk in his anti-hierarchical footsteps and see art everywhere in our lives, in the carpets, pots, and gardens created with such care by anonymous artists in lovingly restored cars, and in those neighborhood-free libraries. But here's the huge payoff. This approach opens for us the world of the greatest artists like Rembrandt, Cezanne, and Pollock. Cezanne, the master magician, can and really should be approached with relaxed and exploring interests, approached not as an awesome demigod, but as a drawer of pictures. When you open yourself to the drawings, as you do to popular songs, not worrying about embarrassing yourself, not worrying about loving something the wrong amount or the wrong way. That's how art reveals itself to you. The difference between great art and mediocre art is simply that great art keeps on giving you more the more you are open to it. When art writers and critics speak in those superlatives about great art, describing the awesome powers and deeply moving innovations, and we do that too, we do it on our show, we'll probably do some of that today. (laughs) What writers and curators are often trying to do is identify historically what innovations the artists brought into the world. It's exciting to see how artists influenced each other, but it's not necessary. It's just something I love about looking at art, but honestly, it only adds to the appreciation that is available to anyone with their eyes wide open. Today, we're going to talk about why Paul Cezanne is great. To me, it's always unfolding and surprising me, and we're going to try to reveal some of that to you, our listeners. Well, good morning, everyone. Yes, our show today is about a great artist. It's about an important exhibition that just closed at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. The show is titled Cezanne Drawing. When I hear the name Paul Cezanne, I get very excited. He was a great artist, and that's with a capital (laughs) G-R-E-A-T. I have come to appreciate Cezanne so much more than I did when I was in college, although I always had an eye for him. Where do I begin? The exhibition, which is closed at the Museum of Modern Art, shares 250 
drawings by Paul Zan, uh, Paul, excuse me, by Paul Cezanne, and some important kaleidoscope, watercolor paintings, and some oils mixed into the exhibition. Let me outline why Cezanne's legacy shows in this exhibition, and when you look at his work at any time, what it gives us. The power of his sharing and his legacy are rarely equaled. Cezanne, as a person, is kind of like a great alpha male lone wolf in art. <laughs> he never really became part of any movement completely. He did his thing and paved his path as a visual elucidator of beauty. He was incendiary, aloof, and even say some he was downright weird. He was not an intimate person. He was kind of gruff and raw, but he left us loads of beauty for all to see. And he did it his way, signed, sealed, and delivered, as only Cezanne can. <laughs> well, also, Cezanne is an intuitive and confident mark maker. He shows us his raw process, unpolished and unashamed. Cezanne teaches us the value of process versus product. We talked about this in our last show and have many times before on the Artist Experience radio program. He shows us how to enjoy the ride in the art process from the first mark on the paper to the last when his composition makes a final end. Well, this show is a big deal. Peter and I made a trip to New York to the Museum of Modern Art just to for this pur purpose of seeing this show. And when we got to MoMA, we didn't have our vaccination cards with us. Oh, oh no! Wow. We, we felt like these clueless rubes from out of town, even though I was trying to wear black clothes I always do in New York. But the, <laughs> the guards met us at the door, and they meant business. I was able to call my neighbor to go into my house in Maryland and take a picture of my vaccination card and email it to me. But Peter was helpless. His phone was an hour away in Brooklyn. And I knew right then that I would go in with or without him. Yep, save myself first. So, <laughs> <laughs> so now we both know and we live with this truth for the rest of our lives. Peter, however, saw his chance and got past the guards and we were in. Go, Peter. <laughs> Well, Cezanne provides a basis for the importance of observational drawing, and he has a modern take on that. He could draw like the best of them in any academic sense, and he did it powerfully. Cezanne takes us further through close looking, studying, and seeing his subjects on a higher plane. These works affirm the need to study our subjects. This is something we do, do not do in today's world. We glance over, we gloss over, and we even fake it. Then, Cezanne invites us into the journey of why good drawing makes for good painting. Sheila and I have taught drawing and painting for more than a half a century combined, and it is clear when you look at Cezanne. His strength as a draftsman is essential in the development of his beauty in his paintings. And it's a, it's a definite mantra. Good drawings make for good paintings. And lastly, Cezanne is the fundamental foundation and the pillar to modern art. Cezanne's visual language is a distillation, a simplification. This is a sophisticated abstraction of what he was seeing. This is very... 
very difficult to do to, for any artist. And Cezanne built the visual bridge to a radically new art world, which became modern art for those of, uh, that came after him. He left a legacy. And to his compatriots in France, like Monet and Matisse, the greatest of us all, said Claude Monet. If Cezanne is right, I am right, chimed in Matisse. And my one and only master, said Picasso. And they all agreed he was the father of us all. If, if Picasso could say that, you re it really had to be special. And Cezanne was no special. No kidding. <laughs> in some viewers' minds, drawings occupy a lower level in the status of art. And museum goers often think that they'll be bored. So what is it about Cezanne's drawing that make them worth seeing and talking about? Why would we drive to New York for two overnights to see them? Well, first of all, to Cezanne, drawing and color were not separate. He was constantly placing color and redrawing with his brush to reach the final image. The word drawing in this title changes the word from a noun to an active verb. Drawing is really an entrance into the artist's mind. Cezanne drew he sketched incessantly and not copying from photographs or from a screen. In different drawings, he was looking for different things. Sometimes he was just drawing an object in front of him, sometimes composing compositions of gatherings, like in his long bather series. But the drawings were really Cezanne's investigation into the substance of the matter of the world and its harmony with the non-material spirit of life. I can't stress the importance of this more because his encounters with nature, the natural world, is key to his discoveries. There's room after room of drawings, and once your eyes are accustomed to seeing these subtle gradations of grays, pencil drawings for the most part, dabs of color, and it can be overwhelming, those pale small works with an occasional painting. So I took a deep breath and focused in on the first drawing and stood there until it came to life. Oh, boy. Well, that's, well, that's what you have to really do as a, a, an acute observer as you are, Sheila. Well, Paul Cezanne sadly had a very short life, but his output and pulse were huge, his legacy re re reverberating still. Yeah, it is because there's a giant Jasper Johns retrospective in New York and Philadelphia right now. Johns is 91 years old, and for more than 60 years, he's been making these bold, assertive, beautiful art that initially bridged the movement of abstract expressionism to pop art. And since then, he's continued to experiment with some consistent recurring imagery, especially with processes, and some somehow seeming to have, and maybe his subjects have hidden meanings very deep, meanings or maybe he just seems to have deep meanings i'll let you know what i think when i've seen the shows john says that marcel marcel duchamp and cezanne were his masters wow well that's a, another high praise there well paul cezanne was born in uh, aix-en-provence in southern france in 1839. He came from parents that were very successful, as his father was a banker and his mother was a strong influence in his ideas about his life and visions. And that's where 
most of his came from, his mother. She sounded like quite a spitfire, to be blunt. I mean, he grew up Catholic, and his relationship with his faith became stronger in his later years. He studied drawing academically in Aix-en-Provence uh, with the coaxing of his father, but he did go to law school with the coaxing of his father, too, <laughs> at the University of Aix, continuing his study in drawing. In 1861, he left Aix for Paris about the same time as his childhood friend, Emile Zola, uh, who was putting a, a great pressure on uh, to... Uh, well, to go to Paris, and he, and of course, the banking father didn't want him to pursue art, but um, it looks like Emile Zola won out on that one. <laughs> yep. Well, I just have to say that Emile Zola and Cezanne were best friends from the sixth grade. There was a third friend, Jean-Baptiste Bayet, who was a future astronomer, and they swam in the quarries, they explored, they talked. They were inseparable. They were known as les trois inseparables. They experienced a falling out as adults over Zola's fictionalized masterpiece from 1886. It was a depiction of Cezanne and the bohemian life of painters. And he described Cezanne as a failed genius for which Cezanne never forgave him. And Zola never apologized either. The hurt was so deep that when Zola visited Aix-en-Provence, they didn't see each other. Early on, Cezanne suffered a terrific passion that nobody knows what it was, and it was so painful that he would never speak of it to anyone. Wow. And although he was dissatisfied with his son, the father continued to support him. And lay, later, when the father died, he inherited a lot of money. And it kept him sound financially and to do his work and craft. Many artistic adventures, zeniths, and abysses found him in Paris for many years where patronage was there. And he had famous dealers to peddle his work. He showed with the greatest artists of the time, like the Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists, but he was not truly aligned with them. As he found success, he also found that he truly liked isolation, and he sought refuge back in his hometown in Aix-en-Provence, and there was an obsessive nostalgia about the beauty and the resources of that place that he knew so well. In 1870, Cézanne left Paris for Marseille with his mistress, Marie-Hortense Fiquet, and uh, to avoid conscription into the Franco-Prussian War. And he was declared a draft dodger. They returned to Paris, and soon he had his son, Paul, who was born in 1872. Cézanne's relationship with the, the lady of his life was a secret, as so not to infuriate the father who was supporting him financially. Cézanne's life lifelong relationship with Marie Hortense was somewhat nomadic as he traveled from Paris to Aix-en-Provence and to Marseille, and he later married Marie Hortense in 1866. And, that, and a year later, his father died, and he came into that healthy fortune. Cézanne's work outside of Paris was not always received very well, and he had a difficult time getting traction into the south of France, as the level of sophistication towards his work was not there, and it was probably much more traditional um, down there in the south of France as opposed to Paris. And he found the locals in his community excellent subjects, and he continued to paint the folks with honesty and brilliance. 
Not disheartened, he continued in a variety of mediums and in scales to produce huge bodies of work in the still life, landscape, the nude, portraits. He also entertained the mediums of oils, watercolors, pencils, some charcoal, and mixed media. In 1906, he continued to paint plein air in the fields, and one day he collapsed while working. He was nursed by his old um, housekeeper, and I had once read that he was a severe diabetic. Yes, me too. I felt that. But there was a poor circulation in his limbs at the time. He remained in and out of consciousness and worked intermittently in this difficult time. He was finally placed in bed to rest, but pneumonia had set in and he died at the age of 67. And he is buried at the hometown in Aix-en-Provence in the cemetery of Saint-Pierre. Well, thank you for that, Tom. A little vile okay. stuff. Yeah, that's good. Um, so here's an important thing to know. Okay, I'm going to give you two of the basic principles in color theory. And stay with me. It's not hard. Okay, the first principle is contrast of value or light-dark contrast. Light-dark contrast is of fundamental significance in human life and in nature. The painter's strongest expressions of light and dark are the colors white and black. The number of intervals of light and dark gray between light and dark is almost infinite, and the distinguishable shades of gray depends on the sensitivity of the eye and the response threshold of the, obser- threshold of the observer. The threshold can be enhanced by practice. Increasing the number of perceptible gradations sensitizes your eye to those subtle gradations. A uniformly gray, lifeless surface can be awakened to activity by extremely minute modulations of shading. This is an extremely important factor in looking at Cezanne. I needed you in class last week to describe that. Really? Yes. Um, I'm sorry you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> Call me out next time. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> the next principle in color theory is it is a true effect. It's called simultaneous contrast. And it results from the fact that for any given color, the eye generates the, the opposite of that color in the eye. If you've ever had that experience of looking at a red dot and then you look over at a white wall and then that dot is green, that's a true effect of the eye. Absolutely. And so it generates spontaneously that color if it's not already present. These two contrasts, light and dark, and simultaneous contrasts are key to Cezanne. The effects of color contrast are almost always in play and sometimes exploited in looking at painting, but especially in the Impressionists and in Cezanne with his perfect sensation of creating form with warm and cool colors. Well, thank you again, Sheila Blake, for giving our listeners an incredible free art lesson. That is invaluable. <laughs> we thank you. I hope you haven't gone to sleep over that, you guys. Oh, no, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> when you're walking in off the street, 
With the bombardment of colors and contrasts and noise in New York, it may take a little time for your eyes and your brain to settle down and to be sensitive to Cezanne and the contrasts of value, the grays, and the simultaneous contrasts of warm and cool colors. Have patience, and everything starts to shine. The curators were smart. They guided you through the drawings to the occasional paintings, and then you get color, particularly after looking at the pencil and the faint watercolor drawings, the paintings just glowed. That is the effect of the color contrast. Your eye becomes more sensitized to subtlety and then bang, color. In different drawings, he was looking for different things. Sometimes he was just drawing an object in front of him, like a clock or an orange, and sometimes composing compositions of gatherings like his bathers. Cezanne drawing is large and it's demanding. If it was possible, I would have gone several times. As it was, I saw maybe half the show. But it is also remarkably intimate and immediate. He drew every day, and he drew everything in his surroundings. A head, a clock, a plaster cupid. That cupid is outstanding. Oh, my God. And the painting is, too. It's fabulous. I have a facsimile of Cezanne's sketchbook. It's maybe five by seven inches, and there's a page of a drawing of a building. And on the opposite page is a drawing by his son, who's maybe 10, of the same building. And then there's a letter he's composing to a woman to decline her invitation to a party. You can see his painful effort to be polite. But even his words in French jump out like, no, never. He's <laughs> <laughs> not going to a party. <laughs> Cezanne's devotion was to rebuilding the world. What he did was to rebuild the, what, the way we see the world, brushstroke by brushstroke. And through the years, he could do more with less. A pencil line, a subtle shading on a skull, making the surface so hard you could knock on it. Or that same painter, paper becomes the light through the trees and the light at the end of the road. And you can see how he trained his hand and his eye to go beyond the description of the object. Cezanne himself said, Pure drawing is an abstraction. Drawing and color are not separate and distinct as everything in nature has color. This is a quote from Monsieur Cezanne. While one paints, one draws. The more one paints, the more the color harmonizes. The more precise becomes the drawing. The contrasts and relations of tone comprise the secret of drawing and form for the form and the contours of the objects are conveyed to us through the opposition and contrast resulting from their individual colors. But there's also something else. There's a place in these drawings where you can be. There's a place in your imagination, a place where you're forming new ideas or images or concepts of external objects that are not present to the senses, With me, it's a patch of light or color or a graceful line that's not descriptive, but there for the rhythm, just to guide your eye into that ephemeral space. Yes, it's very important in how he uses a line to create space and color to create space. Yes, Yes, it's true. We'll talk about that a little later.
Well, if you've just joined us, you're listening to the Autism Experience Radio Program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio, 94.3 FM. Today, we're discussing the, the work of the great Paul Cezanne, the French artist that lived from 1839 to 1906. His work was featured recently at the Museum of Modern Art, 250 works that solidify his place in practice and process for any artist to learn from. Well, Sozan said, I paint as I see, as I feel. He famously said, and I have very strong sensations. This is a great quote, but before you can paint and get all emotionally involved in all that, you have to know what you feel and how to learn how to see what you're looking at with what you feel and learn how to draw. This is a discipline and it's a practice. And I tell my students, and I've been writing on the blackboard for the last week and a half, I call it the three P's. Practice, patience, and process. Every artist does this. And I don't care if you're a dancer, an actor, a musician, a cook, or an athlete. You must do this. Practice, patience, and process. We all have sensations as artists, but it's how we organize these sensations with the tools to transfer the sensation onto a page, onto a canvas, onto a piece of paper. It's not haphazard or happenstance. It is a thoughtful and mindful process. Our listeners that are artists know this, and those who are about to venture into the world of visual expression and creativity, Sheila and I invite you to surrender to the process. It is the journey that your mind and body takes you across a surface, a media tablet, a page of paper, a canvas. Within the process, one must be intuitive natural, and a guttural mark maker. It must come from within. And I think this is where Cezanne truly shines. It's just natural. He's not forcing a thing. He is a confident mark maker. And this comes in learning how to see, hand-eye coordination, and the honest form of communication on a piece of paper or a canvas, like in Cezanne's sense. One must work at this, and patience is surely part of it. Cézanne spoke of his researches and his studies, of his desire to stand firmly on the ground of observation and, and see beneath the veil of interpretation. This desire and focus to look with care at the subject, uh, there, it's a great lesson for any artist, and this exhibition shows it repeatedly. Yeah. I have to say that last night I was in the drawing group that I'm in, have been doing this for years, drawing from a model, and I kept knowing to myself, I am not Cezanne. I wish it. I felt myself so wanting in, 
Yeah, but the fact that you're in it, in the practice, see, I think that's the important thing, that you're engaged in the, constantly engaged in the practice and the process. That's true. And that's like, that's like so great. It's, it's, uh, you know, Cezanne was watching you, don't worry. Thank you, thank you. Well, Well, you know, it actually gets in the way to talk about genius. Talking that way sets you up to see the art as elevated and sacred, secret, distant, on a pedestal. In fact, the best approach to looking at his art is simple, and the drawings are a good introduction. He drew very well, just like Tom was saying, surprisingly well. He really could draw. Time passes while you look and the faces appear before you out of the page, drawn in pencil, yet they seem very alive, and you could start to try to figure out how he did it. Notice, some lines are not drawn at all. Say the left half of the lower lip, yet the lower lip is there. How does that happen? And why are there three lines under the chin? This is the sort of exploration as you approach a Cezanne that yields a relaxed pleasure as you become aware of his skill. And another thing that's barely been mentioned until now in our hopefully less prudish times, but hiding in plain sight are the erotic images in the rocks or in the bathers, not in the bathers themselves, but in the form that only makes sense as to what they are, intentionally, almost pornographic. I was interested, though, that his drawings did have some of the conventions of the Greek sculptures that he copied at the Louvre, especially the mouths. There's an appealing little trick and possibly Cezanne was unaware of it. It has to do with the with the the little line between the upper lip and the lower lip. And I don't know if Cezanne was aware of it and liked it, but it's there. You know, it's so wild that you just mentioned that because I remember actually my art professor talking about this. Really, these it's subtle right. little little nuances of anatomy that they also make for the sensuality they which do. of course the greek uh the greek smile as they used to call it uh-huh. uh is yeah it's it's inherent in the sculptures but he saw He's, see the thing is he saw it and studied it and, and put it put down. it in exactly and that's the glory of exactly that. so for so he 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 found that yes. <laughs> it was good okay Well, let's go to our station break.
welcome back. This is the artist experience. I'm Sheila Blake, and we, I'm here with my co-host Thompson Ackes. If you just joined us, you're listening to the Artist Experience Radio program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. Today we're discussing the work of the great Paul Cezanne, the French artist that lived between 1839 and 1906. His work was featured at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, 250 works that solidify his place in practice and process for any artist to learn. Well, we kind of uh, talked quite a bit about this whole process, and we, we talked about how he would uh, take so much time in studying. So a great example of this is that it just like say he's doing a portrait of uh, Madame Cezanne, he required 150 sittings for a yes, portrait. Now that is definitely <laughs> incredible. That's 150 sittings. So he wasn't painting the exact moment. He wasn't painting the, the absolute character. He wasn't even kind of maybe going for exact likeness. But he was capturing something more obviously, than Madame Cézanne, what, what he was thinking about, or what her character was, possibly, you know, the wrinkles on her face. He wasn't interested, and he was going beyond, and that comes, I think, through intense study. He's not like Rembrandt. In one of Rembrandt's paintings at the National Gallery, uh, Gallery uh, Potiphar, it's given us at the very moment when uh, Rembrandt comprehended that his wife was what he was telling him. She was lying, and maybe we know the story, and Rembrandt gives us that moment. And I think it's a very good contrast between Cezanne and Rembrandt. Rembrandt is definitely more immediate in that sense. Yes. Um, so that's not what Cezanne did at all. Cezanne would sometimes ponder for an hour a single brushstroke. Now, that's amazing. And remember, we were just talking about patience, you know, process and practice. You know, that takes a lot of deliberation to do that. For an artist, that really is, is a discipline. That, that's a very different discipline, but it's a discipline. He was attempting something much different and something that has never been done. Uh, in creating a visual Hortense, which is his wife, and it was that difficult to do. So there must have been a lot of struggle in that. You know, a lot of a polemic, a personal polemic about putting a mark down and studying it for so long. But uh, uh, it says something about his character as an artist yeah. and how he looks at the canvas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had, he had once said that he wanted to make his paintings as monumental as the things that he saw in museums. And, but he did it in a different way. And so there's something, like if you compare Hutas with the Mont-Saint-Victoire, they are both monuments. Ah, that's you know? nicely put. Yes, yeah. thank you for that. Yeah. So Cezanne, he learned a lot from the Impressionists. Cezanne's early paintings in his youth were imagined scenes of violence and rape and murder. The Impressionists were at that time, changing painting from action scenes into a study of how things appeared in the world. This was a much better fit in Cezanne's explorations. The discoveries of the Impressionists had to do with their investigations of optics and with sight as a sense impression. 
Objects were depicted as they appeared instantaneously. They didn't have outlines on them. This was, there was a field of light and color. Color needed understanding. The principles of simultaneous contrast, which I talked about before, and value contrast, contrast were described and experimented with. Painters used these contrasts to achieve sunlit surfaces in pictures that could be viewed in the dim light of apartments. These glowing paintings are still, over a hundred years later, possibly the world's favorite paintings. Cezanne, he took a different path. He discovered a truly uncanny effect, and he worked this discovery. This was totally his and his alone. He found a way to solidity. He didn't just represent form in three-dimensional volume. He didn't hint at it. He created it. Here's the fundamental clue for viewing his paintings. The three-dimensionality created in his paintings is not represented on the surface. It is created in your experience while as you're looking. It takes time. It takes a long gaze. And again, uncanny is the best word for it. The image on the surface starts to form itself in your imagination in three dimensions. The apples and pears on the table don't look luscious. The faces on his sitters don't show any particular character or emotion. Cezanne was contemptuous of these effects. Anybody could soften the mouth into a smile. So what? His ambitions were much greater than that. He made his images so that they truly transform lines and dabs into a free floating three-dimensional vision in the viewer's imagination. You must know about this effect in order to see it. It's a similar action on your part, say, if you're viewing with rapt attention Leonardo, Vermeer, or Angra. But in all those paintings, you are aware of the gorgeous surfaces, the gorgeous eyes and lips and hair, the imitation of skin, of breath, and of cloth. With Cezanne, you don't get that imitation. You get painting from within the vision. It may help at this point in our discussion to consider a scientific description of vision. Okay, space and depth perception have a deep structure in the brain. There's more to it than stereoscopic vision, more to it than geometrical perspective. Our sense of space is more complex than that. We experience a different perspective than the perspective revealed by a camera. We don't see the world as a camera does. In a photograph, everything, the whole scene is usually in focus. Our eyes do not provide that. Our eyes provide focus for a truly tiny, tiny, tiny little point in the center of the visual field, in the face of someone we love. We see an eye, then the nose, then the mouth. Everything else is way out of focus, and we see a face or an object in the whole by moving our focus around it. And the mind integrates all these successive images, and we experience the whole object at once. Try it yourself. Look at a tree and pay attention to your attention, to how your eyes move over the surface to reveal its form. So, this was a scientific way of looking at vision, subject and object, the observer, the light, the eye, the focus on the retina, the brain. What if instead you were an artist? Not much interested in this scientific description. You may still be fascinated by the experience itself, paying rapt attention to it. 
the moment-by-moment unfolding of an object coming into form, matter taking on form as if by itself. In this moving-as-lived perspective, circles viewed slantwise are not only ellipses, they oscillate. Close objects are not as large as they are in the photograph. Far away objects are not as small. An apple doesn't have a fixed border with the background. Cezanne found that he could recreate the vision process representing the apple's border with a series of blue lines floating outside the apple. This was Cezanne's project, expressing, revealing, bringing to life the faces, the bodies, and objects as they organize and express themselves, coming into three dimensions from off the page, not really representing, represented as having three dimensions, but having three dimensions. It's mm. not the illusion of perspective, but his sense of space so that he can place his imprint of the pencil or the brush finding its way through space so you as the viewer can find your way through the fields to the Mount Saint-Victoire and at the same time experience the dabs of paint or the traces of the pencil on the flat surface of the paper. So that's where it's really amazing because you see it both. You see the flat paper, but you also see the journey into space. And if you spend some time 15 or 20 minutes looking with interest and engagement at a Cezanne picture, you might be intrigued, then amazed, and even freaked out as your eyes scan in paths across the field, the world pictured coming into three dimensions, no longer confined to the flat surface on the wall. Well, thank you for that. I, I, I got a lesson in physics there as well, which is not one of my strong points. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Well, if you've just joined us, you're listening to the Otters Experience radio program here at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. Today, we're discussing the, the work of the great Paul Cezanne, the French artist that lived from 1839 to 1906. Well, in the early part of this exhibition, there are these study sheets from sketchbooks, which we talked about briefly in the beginning of the show. And these are truly important in understanding his practice. Practice is about a repetitive effort to grow and be creative. He picked subject and drew it many times. He looked at the same subject from different views. He makes visual comparisons of different things, heads, oranges, and apples. Yes, a head is related to the, the form of possibly an orange or an apple. How are they similar? How are they different? These are these quick sketches of subjects he saw immediately and communicated them on one image next to another. It was like bam, 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 <laughs> right on the page. Uh -huh. and, it, and it's an obsessive effort to capture something visually with immediacy. It's a workout, in other words, and it's a gestural sprint with a tool on a page. Some are just line, other hints at tone. He turns the paper and he puts them upside down. He turned the paper around. I, that I thought was really amazing. He was whipping his, his, his sketchbook around and drawing it. Rapid fire, visual communication at its best. And that's a really great way to learn how to draw because it's also natural and intuitive. The immediacy 
of these studies, uh, they, they're raw, they're sensual, and even sexual. But again, he's not interested in forms. He's, the simplification of the objects is an intimate relationship to each other. Do two pairs look toge- together look like a, a buttocks or a breast? I mean, that's how I, I see that he's, he's going beyond the object. He's looking at it in another way. It seems to have carried this, you know, he carried him through this entire life. The pairs on a table are like nude men and women showering in the same space communally. Cezanne is obsessed by the sensual response with energy and space around it, but not necessarily forms and volumes. Mm-hmm. He's interested in energy and space. Very good. Yeah. Well, the curators borrow drawings from all over the world to reveal Cezanne to you. Many of them are small, sketchbook size, maybe 8 by 10 inches, and some bigger. There was a lot of chatter in the Cezanne portrait show at the National Gallery a couple of years ago, and even at MoMA, the docent next to me was answering questions about Cezanne's marriage to Hortense. These are not Renoirs, with their soft, voluptuous breasts and doll lips. <laughs> They're not even like Bonnard's, with his strange, homely intruding image of marked in the shadows he he may not have had feeling for his wife who as he said had only use for switzerland and lemonade although they were frequently apart there are no surviving letters between them she was kept hidden from his parents as tom said who he felt would disown him even though they had a son based on hearsay and the entrenched chauvinism of his era John Rewald, his chief biographer, described her as a clothes horse who cared little for art. He repeats the baseless rumor that Hortense, who was living in Paris, failed to materialize at her husband's deathbed in Aix-en-Provence because she had a pressing appointment with her dressmaker. The whole thing about Hortense, it doesn't really matter. First of all, she's posing. Maybe if you've never modeled or drawn, you don't know how difficult it is. You can't hold any expression, like a facial expression, for long minutes of or hours at a time. Hortense was plain. Her resting face wasn't happy or serene. And Cezanne was totally demanding, as, as Tom just explained, a hundred and fifty sittings for a portrait. Apples stay still, and so do buildings <laughs> and mountains. That was her job. I have no idea how she felt about her husband. I saw one letter she wrote to a friend about the long hours he worked with little recognition, but any good wife would say that. Probably he was no fun at all and not particularly communicative at all. Okay, we got a little of that Sheila Blake dirt in there. <laughs> <laughs> Sheila, what I want to talk about in the work is is the transfer of energy in mark making. And Cezanne's Edge of the Pond is a frenetic repetition of marks that create energy through repetitions. Visuals in nature are like sounds in nature. It's all about repetition. Energy exists in a space. And I think this is, again, where Cezanne shines. These drawings are about movement in a space, whether it is the rustling of the leaves on a tree or the clouds moving in the sky or a person going into a pool of water. It's about action, 
and energy. And the drawings give us that. Sometimes when I see a Cezanne drawing, I see atoms or molecules wobbling in the Uh space around the object in in a kind of energy. The process in Marx are a repetition in unison. Cezanne is not really interested in volumes. It's what volumes do in a space or to a space. That's what he's interested. And he's a close observation of nature around him. The void around the forms in that positive-negative space uh, situation are really about vectors of energy and how they work uh, with each other. Our universe, our planet, our place in space is really all about energy. And there's the physics to it. And I, I, I was, as I was writing the script, I got a kick out of it. Well, the word physical comes from the word physics. And what does that all mean? <laughs> Coming from the Greek word nature. It's about what nature does. And, and that's what Cezanne is grappling with in these drawings and paintings. He's really trying to echo the energy that nature gives us. That's how right I see it. Right on, Tom. Wow. Well, the thing, there's so much in these drawings that don't get talked about. And some are the clearly erotic images. In the beginning, Cezanne was all about violent rape scenes. And maybe that's what and who he was learning from history paintings, Delacroix and Goya. No softness there. They are disturbingly psychological. (laughs) But it's as though he discovered the light and he allowed the paper to become the light. And sometimes the drawings were just about learning what something is and sometimes about transcending any object so that the ephemeral light transposes everything into some kind of presence. And I'm just going to say, touched by God. That's the only way I can explain it. The most sensual drawings for me isn't a body at all, but a drawing of a plaster cast of Cupid. And look at those legs. Mm. Mm. He's also playing around. In his sketchbooks, he's putting a few drawings, as Tom was saying, of completely different scales ahead with a landscape and some attention even to how they fill the page. Cezanne's work is about going beyond himself, his hulking, aging body, his grouchy disposition, his secretive nature. He's still, there's still that old grump. And and as Tom said, he had diabetes, he had eye problems, but he had a need to go beyond himself, not out of kindness. He had very little feeling for his wife. Probably he loved his son, though. And uh, although they were frequently apart, she was kept hidden from his parents, and the whole thing about Hortense, but it doesn't really matter because what he really was doing was going beyond himself. And that's what artists do. They go beyond themselves. I think while that's why we look at these drawings, to see transcendence in a breaststroke, in a gentle tree limb, in the path covered by light, absorbing light, leading to light. But it helps, too, to have another goal in mind. Once you've listened to this episode of Artist Experience, you will be aware that Cezanne's work 
keep revealing themselves, getting more and more reality, more and more depth in an uncanny experience of an emerging order as the objects start to appear in three dimensions. It's this experience which is at the heart of Cezanne's work. It's this experience that you should achieve for yourself. When you find yourself in Washington, D.C., or New York, or Paris, or any city with a museum that has his work on display, we live in Washington, D.C., and you can see Cezanne's work at both the Phillips Collection and the National Gallery of Art. So, go. Absolutely. That's an absolute must. Well, Cezanne had to be a man of faith. Art making is a faith process. We must believe in what we are doing, firstly, as a discipline and a practice. You must believe in the journey as a process with an end goal in mind, which should possibly be a visual product. We must commit to the journey with practice and fortitude. Lastly, one must know the credibility of the product and the art piece that you created, that creation made you grow. Uh, and we talked about this in one of our last shows on a revealing beauty before you. It's that relationship between humanity and beauty that takes us beyond, hopefully to a transcendent state. When one looks at the drawings and paintings, um, like his works of, of, of Saint-Mont-Victoire or his bowls of fruit or ba uh, figures bathing, it becomes evident that there was a faithful commitment to his craft and his subjects. He devoted with, a, with a emotional, physical, and, and truly sp spiritual devotion. That's how I feel. This is a powerful legacy uh, for an artist to leave, and there's so much to absorb and and. As Sheila has said, you've got to take your time in looking at these works for the beauty, the humanity, and even possibly the divinity in them. And thanks for listening. Sheila, what, we have an enigma for that next show. What are we going to do? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to Baltimore. Oh, right. <laughs> and we're going to go see the Juan Gris show that's just up there. Juan Gris was a fabulous Cubist painter, really wonderful, kind of between Picasso uh, and Cezanne in and some Cezanne way. really a lot in, yeah, the, in some ways. I yeah. love his work. Oh, Juan Gris really? is one of my favorites. Hooray. Absolutely. All right. So, looking forward to that. So stay tuned to our next exciting programming at WOWD Tacoma Radio 94.3 FM. Stay tuned to the exciting programming coming up next with Bobby Hill and Clay Fink, This Music. Bobby and Clay share their incredible knowledge and musical depth with their musical programming on Saturdays, every Saturday from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Avant-garde Jazz is right here. Experience art and the visual in everything you do, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Suzanne takes you down to her place near the river you can hear the boats go by you can spend the night beside her and you know that she's half crazy but that's why you wanna be there and she feeds you tea and oranges that come all the way from china and just when you mean to 
that you have no love to give her Then she gets you on her wavelength And she lets the river answer that you've always travel with her and you want to travel blind and you know that she will trust you for you've touched her perfect body with your mind and Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water and he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower and when he knew for certain only drowning men could see him he said all men will be sailors then until the sea shall free them but he himself was broken long before the sky would open forsaken Almost human, he sank beneath your wisdom like a stone. And you want to travel with him, and you want to travel blind, and you think maybe you'll trust him, for he's touched your perfect body with his mind. Suzanne takes your hand and she leads you to the river She is wearing rags and feathers from Salvation Army counters And the sun pours down like honey on Our Lady of the Harbor And she shows you where to look among the garbage and the flowers there are Heroes in the seaweed There are children in the morning They are leaning out for love They will lean that way forever While Suzanne holds the mirror And you want to travel with her And you want to travel blind And you know you can trust her for she's touched your perfect 